Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing with our read-through of The Hunger Games, the first book. Now we are on chapters three and four. So why don't you give us a recap, Chris? So in these chapters, Katniss and Peeta are taking custody. And Katniss sees some guests, she sees her family, she sees Peeta's dad, she sees Gail and Madge as she says goodbye to them, but then they get on the train to the capital, where Katniss reflects on the Mockingjay pin that she got from Madge, she thinks about how she began hunting and foraging when she was younger, and she and Peeta ultimately confront and impress Hamish as they pull into the capital. Yeah, a lot going on. Mm-hmm. So what was a striking moment for you in these chapters? It's hard because there were a lot of things, but to pick a couple, one moment was really interesting when Gail was talking to her about when you get in the games, try to find a bow. If they don't have a bow, make your own. And she was saying, well, there's not always trees and wood there. And he Mm. said, but usually there are. And she was thinking about some of the other years. Um, Another year they tossed everybody into a landscape of nothing but boulders and sand and scruffy bushes. I particularly hated that year. And I just thought that that was a really interesting and important thing to put in there. You would think about people in the districts just besides like district two or some of the careers where it's become this you know a notoriety of of winning the games and being a victor but you would think of everyone else in the districts just hating the games Mm -hmm. and it's not to say that she doesn't hate the games Katniss does hate the games but you can see that there is still an effectiveness that the people in the capital who are producing them have Mm -hmm. just in ways that they can understand entertainment and manipulation of people, even if district people can't be manipulated in quite the same ways. She particularly hated that year instead of just she hates them all the same. So I thought that that was interesting. Yeah, I also liked how in that moment they talk about how one year when a lot of the tributes died from like frostbite, mm-hmm. that was less entertaining for the capital and how they had to kind of learn from that. And since then, there is usually wood around. And that struck me as, as a moment where it's like, look, the capital is also still learning. You know, they, they certainly yeah. have a lot of competence in building and entertaining Hunger Games each year, but they also have some misses. They're not all hits. So seeing not only her perspective on what she likes and dislikes, but her ability to see how effective they are for their intended purpose as well of being a spectacle for the capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's probably some people are employed in the capital just to do viewer data analysis, you know, mm-hmm. because we know they're spying on people while they're watching their devices. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that would be a fascinating look into them perfecting this terrible thing. Totally. I was also thinking about how good Collins is at making the reader just very quickly face their privilege Mm. like right from the beginning as soon as she walks into the justice building this was the nicest place she had ever been 
Mm-hmm. There's velvet on this couch, and she only knows what that is because of a dress that her mom had that happened to have a little bit of it on there. And then as soon as they get into the train that's taking them to the capital, just all of her just very quick observations, yeah, it just it makes you face the fact that some people don't have these privileges, like both hot and cold water. Mm-hmm. And things like that. And I think that Suzanne Collins just does a really good job of making it so matter-of-fact in Kenneth's voice, but really showing the disadvantages she's had compared to us as the reader and kind of creating a distance there. Which hopefully, (laughs) which I assume Collins is partially doing, is to critique us as Americans Mm -hmm. and this huge distance we have compared to a lot of the other places that we exploit to have the nice things that we have. So yeah, I I just think she does it very well and very effectively in a very short amount of time. Yeah, and that velvet moment for me also really highlighted how good she is at using Katniss as a narrator. Because as a writer, Collins knows much more than Katniss knows. She knows what Velvet is, as most readers would, uh, most American readers would. And Katniss wouldn't necessarily know that based off of the the character that she created. And so having a line or two about why Katniss knows what Velvet is does keep us in Katniss's perspective. It does bring in those larger critiques that you mentioned, and it explains more about how Katniss engages with this world and the way that that world has different levels of of access to these kinds of materials. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a really nice way also to show in just one sentence the different reality that Katniss's mom was living in because of the privileges she had within District 12 versus Katniss's experience. Exactly. Yeah. But what else struck you? One other moment that struck me was really just as Katniss was describing her father and her mother's knowledge of plants. Mm. And it made me think of a few things. For one, every time I read and think about the daffodil salad, I'm always Mm. like, wow, that's so interesting. So that's something that I never would have had to do for myself. Totally. And I'm like, wait, those are edible, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it definitely, you know, makes me think about how Katniss and her father in particular do have this very specific connection to the land. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you've mentioned in the past how you read the seam in particular as an indigenous community. And and I think that here, those relationships to the land that that she's highlighting are definitely in that that kind of wheelhouse because... Mm -hmm her and her father not only know which plants are edible and or could be used for medicine, you know, especially her mother, but also how to cultivate those plants and those animals, how to, you know, engage with these much larger relationships that aren't just resource extraction. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that, you know, is very in line with the traditional ecological knowledge that many indigenous groups had. Whereas you and I would just be dead. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think in particular thinking about that in the context of Panem, it made me think about how the capital doesn't have any sense of environment or living with their environment or the mm-hmm. resources that are naturally there. 
and the districts clearly do, and in very different ways. Uh, we'll see later on some of the ways that the other districts and their tributes show the environment that they're from. But already we're seeing how Katniss in particular, as someone who does go out into the environment outside the district itself more than most, has that kind of knowledge. Yeah, which was taught to her in not a formal setting. Mm -hmm. All the education that they get primarily is centering around coal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing is the the capital is all about the resource extraction. Mm -hmm. And especially when you look at, you know, they, they mention kind of offhandedly, yeah, the reason Pan Am is now what's left of North America is because of cataclysmic climate change and disasters that have occurred. And the capital is continuing the types of behaviors that are leading to that in our society and clearly led to that in Pan Am. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, before we move on to the next section, just the third one I'm going to quickly throw in there is when Madge visits her and says goodbye and gives Katniss a kiss on the cheek. That struck me when it never had before. It's not something I really noticed. But I was like, that seems like a pretty unique interaction that wouldn't be super common. I don't think either of us when we were 16 would kiss a friend on the cheek saying goodbye to them. So my little gaydar was going off <laughs> in wondering um, about that interaction. And yeah, if Katniss is just oblivious and maybe maybe Madge has a little crush on her or something. Yeah. Katniss is oblivious to a lot of things, especially in that realm. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly in that realm, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Mainly just in that yeah. realm. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's head into our next section. This is from another point of view where we try to look at scenes from perspectives other than Katniss's. So what were you thinking for this section? So I was thinking when they're in the train, Katniss and Peta are eating their breakfast and Effie comments on their good table manners. Mm -hmm. You know, they're so much better than the two they had the previous year who Effie says ate with their hands like savages, which if we are reading this as people from the seam are predominantly indigenous, that's like a whole other added layer of terrible. And then Katniss's response to just being, like her defiance is already coming out. She starts eating with her hands and then wipes them on the tablecloth mm -hmm. just to... Yeah, she's angry at Effie, and she should be angry at Effie. Totally. For judging these children who have never had, like, they have been starving probably their whole lives. Yeah, and calling them savages. Calling which is them just savages. so awful. And these were children that obviously went and got killed. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's terrible. And so I was kind of thinking about that scene unfolding through Peta's perspective and actually involves a spoiler for later on in this book. So if you haven't read the book or watched the movie, then you're going to want to skip ahead to, to 13 minutes and 30 seconds of this recording. So we don't know exactly 100% when he decided that I'm going to do anything that I can to protect her if I can. 
so I was kind of, when I was reading this and just like my love of Katniss was growing and just kind of thinking about it through Peta's perspective of just, well, great. Now I have to not make it out. She has to be the one who makes it out of this mm. because she's too great. This is This is the only way, you know? Yeah, I like that too because without that, then Peta loves Katniss just because he had a crush on her since they were kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he did this very kind thing for her that helped save her life. Sure, that can be a crush, but he's starting to spend time with Katniss and then appreciate, yeah, her fiery nature and the fact that she doesn't forgive and forget and that she holds people accountable for what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And what that means, especially, you know, for a tribute in that society and, and as he's experiencing that. So yeah, that, that's, I think, a really good headcanon. Right? Because if I was sitting there, I'd be like, oh man, like <laughs> she's the one who should make it out. Like <laughs> clearly she, you know, she should live. Not that any of them should die, but yeah. you know, she should live because she has the right perspective here and she's not intimidated by Effie and she's willing to just be defiant to make a point. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But what is another perspective you're reading? I was actually struck by the scene with Madge. Um, mm. And I was thinking about it from Madge's perspective because Madge comes in and she is insistent in a way that surprises Katniss and mm-hmm. doesn't really fit with what we have heard of Madge thus far, where she's kind of quiet She is a friend of Katniss's just because they're both isolated, not because of anything particularly that brings them together. But here she's coming in and she's insistent about this pin and that Katniss needs to wear it. And she knows all the protocols around it and she insists that Katniss wears this pin. And we learn very soon thereafter when when Katniss is looking at it, the history of the Mockingjay and how Mockingjays are, as Katniss puts it, kind of a slap in the face to the capital. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think Katniss really puts two and two together explicitly here, but the fact that Madge is giving her this pin, I think, brings even more support to the idea that Madge is not just okay with her privilege status. Mm -hmm. That Madge is someone who sees this oppression and inequality and the awful nature of the Hunger Games and the way the districts are treated, even as she is herself privileged relatively speaking, in District 12. And so, yeah, I, I think that it's uh, it's just a striking moment that for Madge, she only has a little bit of time to say goodbye to Katniss, who might be her only friend. And what she chooses to do is also to be defiant in the way that she can. Reading that scene, it's so much more than just Katniss getting this pin that if you have the copy of the book that we have is right on the cover. <laughs> Uh, and thus is important for that reason, but I think also because we're seeing other examples of how people are engaging with this outside of just Katniss's own defiance, which which is so prominent and so important to the story. But for me, it was it was great thinking about this scene as Madge trying to maybe live up to that aspect of Katniss or just trying to do whatever she can for herself and for those who matter to her. Yeah, and I like that because then it makes this slap in the face be coming from the mayor's family Mm -hmm. in District 12. Exactly. It's not just coming from 
someone who lives in the seam in District 12, you know, the, mm. the, the one of the lowest class or caste statuses that there are there, but someone who is quote-unquote higher class, mm-hmm. but who is still District 12. But is also a part of the system. Yeah. She, well, that's the thing is she's part of the system and she's part of the community, which mm-hmm. I think is interesting here. And who knows if her, her dad knew about it, if he would be okay with it, who is the mayor, but it doesn't matter to her. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. I have one last thing to add. I thought it was really interesting when Katniss was trying to imagine what goes on in Effie's head. Mm. Because I think that that's what our, from another point of view, section in the podcast is trying to do. And so I noticed that in a way I hadn't ever before that she was trying and it wasn't for very long and she didn't succeed yeah. but it was it does show the compassion that she does have even though she finds people from the capital despicable and all of that but there's at least that attempt there yeah she still sees them as human mm. and yeah just someone who's 16 has grown up under all of this oppression and Katniss even attempting to imagine i think is it's a really cool, really um, important, deep thing for her to do. Yeah. And especially for Effie, who at this moment, we really do just see as this insincere, performative representation of the capital. And for Katniss to not only see that, but to at least imagine the idea that there's more underneath that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. Good on you, Katniss. Yeah. But let's move into our touch points, where we discuss connections that we see between the text and our own society. What touch point or points do you have? Something that I was thinking about was when Peta's father gave Katniss the cookies and told her right before he left that he would keep an eye on her sister Prim Mm -hmm. and make sure she wasn't starving. Katniss thought that, like, maybe there is enough fondness to keep Prim alive and that idea is really picking up on something important in the workings of society in how people who are more privileged show compassion or Mm. generosity you know there there's the problem that comes with a kind of an exploitation of suffering when we look at nonprofits and NGOs and things where they show pictures of people suffering or the kids that this money will help or whatnot. And there's definitely some exploitation that is happening there, but it's like for the cause of trying to muster an emotional response from people mm. because otherwise they just won't care. Because they don't know these people, it's happening not right where they are. You know, it could be a world away, or it could be a state away, or whatever it is. It's not people that they interact with regularly. And so, yeah, it was just kind of making me think about that. And it's not necessarily fondness that organizations use, but it is, it's similar in the sense that another kid from the seam will die mm-hmm. and will starve to death because they haven't gotten the opportunity. You know, they, they don't have those relationships or the access to that sort of like positive goodwill towards them. And that something like that could seem small, but it could just make such a huge difference, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. Because that's the thing. What is going to affect someone enough to make them act in a way that sacrifices something of their own? Yeah, and and such structures are often so embedded in those inequalities that it's just hard to get out of them where Mm. you are still getting people who are getting positions of status and authority as a board member because they're donating so much money. Mm -hmm. You're getting people who are getting paid as an executive director to do this work. And so, so much of the resources are tied up with a structure that is still at its core privileging those who are at the top, even as they're trying to serve those who are less fortunate. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends on the organization. Of course. Some greatly underpay their staff mm-hmm. to try to have 99% of all pros, you know, of all money coming in going to um, the people they want to serve, which is also can be problematic mm-hmm. having worked <laughs> for a Absolutely. few nonprofits where it's like, well, I also need to eat. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so, yeah, just it, it gets complicated, but I think... It's the personalness, right, Mm. that I think is the key. It's like the fondness that they have for Prim in particular or like in our potential context. You have to see some person's face. It's not enough just to hear about the issue. Um, I mean, for some people it is, but for the vast majority, it needs to be personalized in some way. Totally, yeah. Well, what is one of the touch points that you saw? Yeah, so there were a couple moments here where... I was struck by elements of the mobility of characters Mm. um, in the district that I had never really engaged with before um, because the last time I read this, I had not yet read uh, another book called Collisions at the Crossroads by Genevieve Carpio, which is a really great history of the Inland Empire to the east of Los Angeles. But Carpio focuses on mobility as an important element in history and in in particular in racial formations in mm. uh, the early 20th century and late, late 19th century. And Carpio argues in this book, I think very, very well, that not only the tools and technologies that can allow for mobility, but in particular, the limits that are placed on mobility are really essential to the experiences of people and communities. Absolutely, yeah. One example that Carpio looks at is how Japanese immigrants uh, working in agriculture there started using bicycles as a way of being able to choose what farm they could work at. And it gave them more economic agency Mm. of, you know, choosing what work they can do so that they can then advocate for themselves or, you know, put pressure on their employers to treat them better. Choose one that will pay them a little more. Exactly. But at the same time, because of that, there are also limits put on who can own a bicycle, uh, who is going to be stopped at traffic stops, you know, what they, what laws are put in place around those pieces of mobility. And, and you know, this continues to today where, yeah, what, what traffic laws exist where and who those are targeted at are really, really crucial in who is and is not welcome in a space. Mm-hmm. And who has the power to limit the mobility of certain groups. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so reading through it this time, when, when Katniss mentions how she's never been in a car before or on a train, and that actually travel between districts is deeply forbidden. Yeah. 
this is really highlighting, I think, those those elements of control and how the mobility of people in the districts are so regimented and so controlled because greater access to mobility provides greater agency and thus threatens hierarchies of power. Absolutely. And you could even argue that Katniss leaving outside the fence is a way of her finding her own mobility, her own agency in that way, kind of like what we were talking about last week. And that it is tied to, yeah, the fact that she is going outside the limits that are placed upon her of where she can go and how she can get there to find ways of surviving. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so that that whole kind of perspective on history is something that that really spoke to me and and is very interesting to me. Um, So reading through the book this time with that being something I experienced earlier this year was was definitely a really interesting element. Yeah, it's it's definitely something I had never thought about prior to you reading this book while you were in grad school and telling me about it. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, wow. You won't let certain people ride bicycles. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. You know, and today we look at things like Where do buses and trains serve? Mm -hmm. What communities do they go to? In Los Angeles, the extension of our metro rail lines is a huge investment that the city and county and state are are investing in. And I think that's great. I think public, public transportation is amazing. But... There's been huge pushback from certain communities. We're looking at you, Santa Monica. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but at the same time, I also understand some of the problems that come with the extension. Where where are we extending to? If we are only extending these into suburban areas, is this actually serving the population who needs these the most? Or how is this contributing to gentrification when a new station opens up and then all of this transit-oriented development and housing springs up where developers have to pay less money to create developments because they're close to these transit services. Mm -hmm. But then those prices get skyrocketed way up and then just increase. Yeah, who is using this? It's these fairly privileged people that can displace the people who are actually in that community who need those services. Yeah, and how does capitalism play into it? Where it's like, we'll have you stop around stores, Mm -hmm. you know, when sure that could be useful, but maybe you should have it stop at some more grocery stores or something like that. Absolutely, yes, yes. So yeah, I I think that that it's an interesting perspective to to bring to to District 12 and to Katniss's, yeah, the first time that she's leaving the district and and getting access to these new kinds of mobilities, but how that's being controlled in new ways for her. Totally, yeah. Well, why don't we move into our wonderment section? This is the section where we basically discuss what we're questioning, what we're wondering about in regards to the story that we've read or what might be coming next. So what are you wondering about? So I was wondering looking at how Haymitch and Katniss and Peeta are all interacting at the beginning um, of their relationship with each other as mentor and mentee. And obviously the beginning is quite tense Mm -hmm. and confrontational. And it just made me wonder how other tributes from other districts interact with their mentors, how other characters that we meet in the future how they engage with their mentees, how victors who are addicted to certain substances like Hamish, how, yeah, that relationship looks. Because Katniss 
she was like, you're supposed to give us advice, right? And he, and Hamish is like, stay alive, <laughs> laughs at it. And she's just thinking, I despise Hamish. And I can totally understand that perspective. And so I wonder, like, is that prevalent among tributes to have a really difficult relationship with their mentor as they're terrified and facing death and all of these things and if their mentor is not equipped to help them in any way partially because of their own trauma certainly but also from the mentee's perspective that they're just not taking their life seriously enough Mm -hmm. you know so yeah i was just kind of wondering how any of those relationships work out (laughs) yeah 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 mine kind of goes in a similar direction in regards to something that you detest because we (laughs) see specifically uh, one detests katniss in particular detests (laughs) because many of the things they get access to are completely new to them. Things that they they would never have gotten the ability to have. Hot chocolate is a great example here. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm just wondering what it's like for them to experience oftentimes exciting or beautiful or delicious new things that they wouldn't have had before, but they're doing so as part of an event and a society that they detest. That is so terrible and disgusting. Every little thing they enjoy, they know is coming at the expense of their community and others. Exactly. Yeah. And on top of that, it it makes me think, because we don't know as much about where Pete is at and when he's there, but how he is taking those things in. You know, he, as they enter the capital, he is able to wave at people. And Mm -hmm. he kind of says, you know, who knows, maybe one of them's rich. So, yeah, maybe there's some strategy there. But I'm also like, oh, is PETA also just friendlier and just more open to this experience and what he can be? Or is he playing this game? And to what extent is is, those happening simultaneously? Or are they in conflict? Um, Oh, I think he's playing the game, personally. I think he's... he's, I think he's playing the game, but I think that he's not necessarily always doing so in a, like, entirely strategic way. I think that he also has elements of he likes people more than Katniss does. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. He's strategic and she's strategic, but he's more open, Mm -hmm. whereas she's so close off to everyone and everything, and that makes her just kind of dig down into Mm -hmm. the strategy and also think people are having strategies when they're actually not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sometimes do. Exactly. Yeah, so... so I guess one thing that I'm going to keep my eye on as they go forward and we see them going to parties and things like that, to what extent are they engaging with that and and how is it affecting their experiences to get access to things that they love while doing so in a way that really has such negative aspects to it? Mm. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Well, before we close out for this episode, there's one other thing that I have a lot of wonderments about. What's that? So I am wondering about this situation that Katniss walks into that we have no context for. And this is in chapter four, when she's going in for breakfast. 
And it says, as I enter the dining car, Effie Trinket brushes by me with a cup of black coffee. She's muttering obscenities under her breath. Haymitch, his face puffy and red from the previous day's indulgences, is chuckling. Peter holds a roll and looks somewhat embarrassed. And like, we never find out anything more of what was happening there. So... I just want to know, especially as we get to know these characters much more. I just want to know what happened. Mm -hmm. What were they talking about? What What did Hamish do? Exactly, because Effie is muttering obscenities. And that's not really Effie's style. So, like, something was going on. Yes. Rude, Suzanne Collins. <laughs> Rude. Yes, this is how things would be, but still. <laughs> you say obscenities instead of obscenities. <laughs> I mean, thing, things are obscene. Yeah. Not obscene, so. Yeah. yeah, but I've always heard obscenities. I don't know if, if that's what it is. It's just, it's funny. You're funny. Maybe Thank it's you. my capital accent. That's what it is. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, but it, that does really show part of the charm and frustration of first-person narrator. Mm. We're just like, what's happening? Yeah, Whereas yeah. another book, we would know what was happening, but not here. <laughs> well, that will wrap up our discussion of chapters three and four. What's going to be happening next time on The Hunger Games? So we're going to be looking at chapters five and six with Katniss Extreme Makeover Edition. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our social media and our website in the episode description, or you can join us at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines if you want to become a supporter of the podcast and get access to all sorts of extra content, including book club activities that we'll be doing as we go through the books. We want to thank Kimberly Tillipestel at Lacelet for designing our logo, you can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.